technology in these days has overtaken us in so many ways. Almost every task that we can think of can be done with some form of technology. And even if you focus that in upon one device in particular, I'm sure it would make a great deal of difference if we did not have it in our possession. Of course, I am talking about our mobile phones. We use it for so many different functions and tasks, and perhaps there is a day and you forget to bring your phone or you forget to charge it, and you almost wonder to yourself, how did I get by without this before? Because you rely upon it to do so many things. Indeed, there are things which not that long ago, they had to be done face to face. We could think of banking. You used to have to go into the bank in person and deal with the teller, but now you can do it through an app on your phone. Or maybe you do your shopping on an app. Or maybe you do uh, some other activity on your apps. Indeed, apps are things that are very helpful and very useful. But there are apps for almost anything under the sun these days. Indeed, I'm sure if you said 10 or 15 years ago that people would be doing things like dating through online services, you would think that they were absolutely foolish for thinking that people who need to be face-to-face would do this through an online medium. And yet we find in these days that that industry, that dating app industry is one that is so popular in these days. Indeed, I, I looked it up, and last year that industry was valued at over $5 billion. You know, that is a, a, an incredible sum, but doesn't it point to the fact that one of man's a, a enduring desires is to find a partner for life? They desire to find that person who they can spend the rest of their life with, that person who they can love and they can cherish and they can marry and be with forever. And despite all of that being true, society is in the midst of a a, a terrible problem where marriages are not lasting. So many people, they they do not view marriage in the correct way or manner. Indeed, last year, between March and January of 2022, there were over 30,000 applications for divorce. If you extrapolate that out to a whole year, that is over 120,000 applications for divorce. So many people, they're going into marriage not understanding that this is meant to be for life. They aren't going in with that biblical mindset that this is something that has been constituted and instituted by God himself. And he has said that man and wife are to be with each other till death do them part. And why do so many marriages fail? Well, isn't it often the case that one party is unfaithful to the other? That there is uh, that relationship that should not occur and then they feel that there's this breakdown in trust and we must separate our ways. Well, this is not a new phenomenon because this is the type of illustration and imagery which the prophet Hosea uses in Hosea chapter 2. Because in the chapter that we have read, the prophet describes Israel as like that unfaithful partner. 
Hosea receives that message from the Lord to tell the people of how they have left their first love. How they have failed God and they have strayed and they have turned away from God and they have gone a whoring after other gods. I'm sure whenever you were reading through the chapter you thought this is a difficult chapter to read. And in many ways it is. But the Lord uses an illustration which the people at this time they would have been all too familiar with. Israel had fallen into terrible and heinous sins. And the Lord says, look at this example of the man who leaves his wife, who is unfaithful and defiles the marriage bed. That is how you have treated me. And so Hosea, he has a most solemn message to the people of Israel. He says, you have turned, you have strayed, you have sinned, you have departed from my ways. And yet he has words of Wonderful encouragement and comfort in verse 19. After telling them how they had been unfaithful, after telling them how terribly they had turned away from him, the Lord says to his people, I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. Although this people had fallen, Although this people had turned their backs upon the Lord and gone whoring after other gods, the Lord says, yea, I will love you. I will draw thee unto myself. Despite all that you have done, I will bring you into a close relationship with me. And you know, men and women and young people today, that is what the Lord does for the sinner. We have turned our own backs upon God and yet he still loves the sinner so that he brings them to himself and draws them into a close relationship with him. And so as we look upon this verse, I just simply want to think about the believer's relationship with God. And I want you to consider first of all from this verse the nature of this relationship. Well, what kind of relationship is in view here in verse 19? Well, it is very clearly and obviously a marriage relationship. The Lord says, I will betroth thee unto me. You see here the Lord is saying, here is a relationship that is founded upon a covenant. Here is a a relationship that is based upon vows and oaths and promises. You see, that is what a marriage is. Whenever that man gets down on his knee and he asks to marry you, he is saying, I want to betroth thee. I want to take you for myself. And then you go into the marriage ceremony and you have all of the vows and all of the I do's and the I wills and you promise to be faithful to your spouse until you die. See, a marriage is based upon a covenant. And this relationship which the Lord has with his people is no different. It is based upon promises and oaths and covenants from the Lord. You see, this language that is used where the Lord says, I will betroth thee unto me. It has the idea of, I will take you for myself. You will be mine. I want you to be mine and I promise to keep you and to have you for all of eternity. Oh, we made mention 
a few moments ago about how society has strayed from the biblical principles of marriage that the Lord set up there in the Garden of Eden, where he said that, therefore shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. See, there is a union. They are not two separate people, but they are as if they are one. And this is what the Lord is telling his people. I want to be yours. I want you to be mine. And I will bring you into this relationship and this union. Or remember who it was the Lord was speaking to. The Lord was speaking to a people who had sinned and turned away from the Lord. They had left their first love. They had broken their vows as it were. This wife who had been estranged is the very one who the Lord says, I will betroth thee unto me. One who is unworthy of it. One who does not deserve it. And indeed, whenever you think of this illustration, if, if the, this was in real life, could you imagine the, the husband being so forgiving to say, I not only forgive you for what you have done, but I will take you back unto myself. And yet that is exactly what the Lord does with us. We have left him by the fall. We have been separated from God. And yet he has been so pleased to say, I will bring you once again into a relationship with me. Well, that's betrothal spoken of, really. It is a renewal of the covenant vow to that wife. And indeed, this theme and this language of making a new covenant is one that runs right throughout Scripture and indeed is especially prevalent in the books of the prophets. Indeed, if you would turn to the book of Jeremiah, you will see something of this in a very familiar passage in Jeremiah chapter 31. Because in Jeremiah 31, we read tremendous words about a new covenant that the Lord will make with his people. But there's also the same illustration used of a marriage relationship. As in Jeremiah 31 uh, and in verses 31 and 32, we read these words. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. And then listen to these words. Although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. Oh, here we see that the Lord using the same imagery with his people. He says, although I was an husband unto you. Yet you were unfaithful to me. You turned your back upon me. It says there in verse 32, which covenant they break. And yet he shows his tremendous mercy for he says in verse 31, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now here we see that new administration of the gospel that is promised. The sending forth of the Messiah, the extension of the gospel call to the Gentile kingdom. The Lord saying, oh, despite all of your failings and all of your sinfulness, yet I will be merciful and loving once more. 
And so we see this theme and this imagery is common right throughout Scripture. And Hosea speaks of the similar thing as, as Jeremiah did by using that imagery of the husband and the wife. What affection and love this demonstrates. Isn't this a wonderful picture of God's grace towards the believer? We are just like that unfaithful spouse. Oh, I'm sure you can think of many a time when you have failed the Lord. Many a time when you have grieved the Holy Spirit. Many a time when you have fallen into bypath meadows. Yet the Lord still loves you. It's wonderful to think about those words where he says in Jeremiah, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. A love that is unchangeable. A love that is immutable. A love that is unfailing. And that is the same love that the Lord is speaking about here in this verse. Only the love of God would seek out a people such as us. Those who are unworthy. And yet, through his love, we have been reconciled to God. We have been redeemed by the blood of his dear son. And we have been brought into this tremendous marriage relationship with God. But you know, this is not something that is just taught in the Old Testament. But we also see it in the New Testament. For you turn with me this time to the book of Romans, you will see how this is a recurring theme throughout all of Scripture. Because in Romans uh, and chapter 7, the Apostle Paul, he uses this theme as well to speak of what the Lord does for us. Romans chapter 7 and the verse 4, where Paul says, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Oh, see, here is why Jesus Christ died upon the cross, to bring us into this relationship with him. It says that we should be married unto another. Well, the previous verses set forth who we had previously been married to. We had been married to the law. We served the law. We obeyed the law. We were under the law. But now that Christ has redeemed us and bought us with his blood, we have been bought to be married to Jesus Christ. Indeed, throughout the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ is shown to be the bridegroom of the church. The Lord says in John 3.29, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. Jesus Christ, he is that loving spouse that has taken us to be his. And so we see that this relationship in Hosea, it is a marriage or a covenantal relationship. But notice secondly, not just the nature of this relationship, but also the duration of this relationship. Because the Lord says in our text in Hosea 2 verse 19, I will betroth thee unto me forever. Forever. There is the duration. Now this is not like any of those celebrity marriages, which I'm sure you have seen, perhaps on TV or online. You see all of this fanfare, and isn't this wonderful that so-and-so has married this person? And don't they look a great couple together? And then maybe a year down the line, it ends in 
anger and bitterness and disappointment and ultimately divorce. It was a relationship that didn't last. But here we see a relationship between God and his people that is eternal. It is everlasting. This is a union that is indissoluble. You see, nothing can separate the child of God from the Lord. You know, maybe you suffer with a lack of assurance. Maybe you think, well, I have fallen into sin yet again. Could the Lord really love me? Am I really His? Or is it possible for me to be lost? Well, here is a word for you. He says, I will betroth thee unto me forever. You cannot break the love between God and his people. Indeed, the Savior says in those familiar words in John 10 and verse 28, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Oh, see there? There's no way you can be separated from the love of God. Really, the the original language, it gives an even greater force to that phrase, neither shall any man pluck me from my hand. It really has the sense that nothing shall be able to. No man, no angel, no devil, no power, no principality. Nothing can pluck you from my hand. You see, our relationship with God is an everlasting one. Nothing can separate us from the presence of God. And this really links into the theme of the perpetuity of the covenant in Scripture. Because right throughout the Word of God, we find that God's covenants are everlasting. They last for eternity. The Lord does not promise something and then somewhere down the line it falls foul and it has to be renewed again. No, the Lord promises something. Well, He will perform it. When He says that Thou art mine forever, he means it. And he doesn't just mean it, but he's able to perform it. Indeed, we read in Ezekiel 37, verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. You see, the covenant of grace that the Lord established in the Trinity from Eternity past, it is an everlasting covenant. It will not have any end, but it will stretch on and on and on forever. And because the covenant which the Lord made is eternal, the fruits and the results of that covenant must also be eternal. He's promised us eternal life. For those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ to take away their sins, he promises eternal life. It's forever. We often sing those words in the hymn, forever with the Lord. Those words are true. Because the Lord has promised something that is eternal, and he cannot lie. God cannot lie. He cannot turn back upon his word. Indeed, in Titus chapter 1, in the second verse of that chapter, Paul says to Titus, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie. God cannot lie. He's promised eternal life as part of an everlasting covenant. Therefore, you can know for sure today, if you are saved, you will be forever with the Lord. Nothing can take you away from that. No man can destroy that union. 
Even the devil himself can you, cannot pluck you from the hands of God. Or really that is the thrust of the, the words that say the, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the Lord's church. It has that idea that the devil will not be able to pluck any out of the church. He won't be able to take any away from the fold of God. Why? Because of this everlasting union between God and his people. Well, you might say, well, that's all well and good, but I'm still struggling with that thought. I'm still struggling thinking that I could be part of such a, a union and bond with the Lord. Well, look once again at the words in Hosea 2.19. It says, I will betroth thee unto me forever. Or you could put your own word in that verse. I will betroth John. I will betroth Jane. Whatever your name is, if you are saved by God's grace today, you can say, I am in this verse. The Lord has said, I will betroth thee unto me forever. Oh, there's no need to doubt. There's no need to feel concerned. There's no need to be worried because what the Lord promises, he will perform. He says, I will. I will. It is not I might. It's not I could. It's not if I choose I could do this. He says, I will betroth thee. We see the nature of this relationship, the duration of this relationship. Notice thirdly and finally the basis of this relationship. What is it that this covenantal relationship between God and the believer, what, what is the foundation of it? We see it in the second part of this verse where uh, the Lord says, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. This is the foundation or the basis of this covenantal relationship between the child of God and the Lord himself. And the order of these things is vitally important. Fundamentally, this relationship is based upon the righteousness of God. See there how that's the first item listed by Hosea? I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness. That is ultimately the foundation of our union with God, based upon the righteousness of Christ. But whenever you look at this, this verse that says, in righteousness and in judgment, really there's the one thought in view, but from two separate aspects. One of them being subjective, and the other being objective. That word righteousness, as we have already intimated, it has to do with that characteristic or fundamental attribute of God, being that he is righteous, he is pure, he is just, he is holy has to do with God being a, a God of equity, a God of purity, a God who is just and pure in all that he does. But wasn't this in the mind of Abraham when he prayed over Sodom? He said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He is one who is infinitely holy. One who is perfect in all his ways. Uh, and he is one who deals with his people according to righteousness. Indeed, when you read these words in verse 19, 
I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness. That preposition in, it could be more rightly translated with the preposition by or with. And therefore it read, I will betroth thee with righteousness. And therefore we see that he is saying, it is only by the righteousness of God that you can enter this relationship. And there we see obviously the Lord Jesus Christ coming into view because it's only through the imputed righteousness of Christ that you or I can come into the presence of a holy God. It is only by his righteousness. It is only by his perfect obedience given to you or I that we can be saved and can be brought into this relationship with God. Oh, see, God's justice needed to be satisfied. If you're still living out of Christ and still living in your sin, God's justice will be satisfied. It will either be satisfied upon your own soul by suffering eternal damnation in hell, or it will be satisfied when you come to faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it will be satisfied one way or the other. And Hosea is saying that those who are in this union and have this bond, they have been brought into it by the righteousness of the Lord. But as I said, this is only one aspect that is in view, for he says it's in righteousness and in judgment. The the thought of judgment, it gives the thought not of uh, a person condemning someone, but rather it has the thought of wisdom, of one dealing wisely with another. And the idea is that because God has acted in righteousness, he can act in a wise manner with regards to bringing those people unto himself. Remember what this illustration was about. It was about a man who had left his love. It is about those who were undeserving of mercy and do not desire to be brought back into the fold. But the Lord is saying, but because I act in righteousness, I am entitled, I am wise in bringing them back to myself. Because I have given to them my own righteousness. I have covered over their sins. My justice has been satisfied. There is no need to think that this has been done rashly or unwisely. But because he has acted in righteousness, he has acted in wisdom. But we see also that Hosea says that it is in loving kindness and in mercies. And this has the the thought and the thrust of the dealing with this person after they have been brought back into that relationship. Because while the righteousness of God has been applied... Yet he understands that here is a people who are fallible. A people who have turned away before and are liable to do again. Therefore he says, I will deal with you in a loving way. Though there are still those ways within you that are inclined towards wrong, I will be merciful towards you. I will deal tenderly with you. I will deal lovingly with you. I will be patient with you. Is that not how the Lord acts with us? Is that not how the Lord works with us today? 
How often we have turned from him and we have strayed, and yet he has dealt lovingly and mercifully and graciously with us. Well, the psalmist was able to say in Psalm 103 that he has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Why? All because he deals with us in loving kindness and in mercies. Oh, how good is the God that we serve. A God of infinite wisdom. A God who is long-suffering. A God who is full of compassion. A God who is plenteous in mercy. One who deals with us in such a tremendous manner. But if you notice in verse 20, Hosea goes on to add one final thought. He says, I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. Oh, he says, all that I have said is true. I will deal faithfully with you. I will not leave you. I will be true to my word. And therefore you can have assurance today that the Lord will indeed do these things for you. The Lord will indeed be loving towards you and merciful and gracious and tender and compassionate. He says in Psalm 89 and verse 34, my covenant will I not break. You see, we are fallible creatures. We might say, I will promise to do something. I'm sure you have done this before and you've said to someone, I promise that I will meet you at such and such a place at such and such a time. That time comes round and you're nowhere to be found. You promised you would do something, but you did not keep it. Well, the Lord is not like that. The Lord keeps his promises for all eternity. He says, my covenant will I not break. What a relationship there is between the believer and the Lord. I wonder, do you enjoy this relationship with God? Have you come into this relationship all by the righteousness of Christ? And are you enjoying the blessed fellowship that there is to be found with him? Well, if you aren't, I trust that you will come to faith and trust in the Lord even this day. May these words even be a blessing to all of our souls as we consider the tremendous blessings and privileges we have in the Lord. Amen. May the Lord bless his word to us. Let's close this meeting with a word of prayer. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we do come before thee a thankful people, thanking thee for all of the mercies that we have in thee. We thank thee for thy tender and compassionate dealings with us, that though we have strayed from the fold, that thou hast brought us back unto thyself, that thou in thy loving kindness hast showered mercies upon us and even drawn us unto thyself by the righteousness of Christ. O Lord, we know that thou do require a satisfaction. We thank thee for the satisfaction that Christ has made on our behalf. And yet, Lord, we are understanding and we do recognize that there may very well be those with us today who are yet outside of such a relationship with thee. Wilt thou not have mercy? Wilt thou not speak to their souls? Wilt thou not convict them with thy Holy Spirit and show them that they too can enjoy such a privilege as being one of the sons of God? 
Be with us, we pray. Part us now with thy fear, thy favor, and thy blessing, we ask in Jesus' precious and most worthy name. Amen.